interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thank you very much for the welcome. Um, I have to start out by saying that I've just arrived back from China, uh, from Shanghai, day before yesterday. So I'm a little jet lagged and but I have some water at hand to help me catch my voice if I lose it. But I'm delighted to have the chance to um, speak to you about one aspect of the contemporary uh, interest and concern with Islam. Um, And my subject uh, this morning is, does religion need a political alibi, the Sharia debate uh, in Nigeria? And I want, in that connection, to examine some of the issues involved in church-state relations, the separation of church and state in particular, and the Islamic take uh, on the issue. The relationship between religion and politics, between church and state, has been a very well-rehearsed issue in Muslim thought and practice because Islam emerged fully into history as a dual tradition of church and state. And because of such, Muslims have been less sanguine than Europeans about making a rigid separation between the secular and the sacred, or between the public ethics on the one hand and private morality on the other. By virtue then of Islam's history, and by reason of the subsequent Western secular expansion in the Muslim world, there is and has been continuing reaction among contemporary Muslims concerning the normative global claims of national secular governments. And some of that reaction has roots also in colonial rule and in colonialism's contemporary effects on Islamist movements. The Western encounter with Muslim Africa changed pre-colonial arrangements of church and state. Colonialism strengthened the tradition of Muslim religious and political integration. Whether that colonial encounter was through direct provocation or through conciliation and collaboration afterwards. For example, the British invasion of North Nigeria provoked resistance among the guardians of the Muslim theocratic state, which was founded in 1804, and it forced the British, the Muslim reaction forced the British to use conciliation and concessions to overcome that resistance and legitimize their power. The British proceeded to cut a deal with Muslim leaders. There would be no undue interference in religious institutions and local customs, but instead the colonial administration 
would work through those religious structures to govern the people. In effect, the Muslim leaders would become co-partners with the British in the colonial enterprise. The issue of, and the same thing, by the way, is true of the French uh, in Africa. Uh, French policy towards Islam was formulated by Xavier Coppolani, who was the French administrator in Mauritania, and his directives about what the French, the French are very logical and philosophical. Um, the British more uh, sort of like to stumble through life. Sort of, um, they say the British Empire, the colonial empire, was founded, was ruled in a fit of absent-mindedness. Uh, but the French, being more logical, produced very clear policy lines, philosophical arguments about the relationship between the colonial regime and the Muslim authorities, and that began in Mauritania and then Senegal and across to Mali, the whole madrasa system, for example, uh, and then later the Ivory Coast. But I'm going to skip that and move immediately to what happened after independence in Nigeria. The um, issue of integrating religion and politics plunged Nigeria into a major constitutional controversy when the military government of General Babangida, who ruled Nigeria from 1985 to 1993, enrolled Nigeria as a member of the Organization of Islamic Countries. The Organization of Islamic Countries is an organization of over 50 different regimes, Muslim governments, and they met only uh, a few weeks ago, among other things, to contemplate what to do after Osama bin Laden's attacks on the U.S. in September. In any case, Nigeria was enrolled as a member of the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries, and that move uh, really created, in 1986, Nigeria was enrolled, it created tremendous domestic unrest in Nigeria. The Christian Association of Nigeria, called CAN, CAN, was formed as an ecumenical grouping of Protestants, Catholics, and African independent churches. And CAN, the Christian Association of Nigeria, issued a statement protesting the federal government's backing for Sharia courts in North Nigeria, as well as enrolling Nigeria in the OIC. But Khan, instead of saying Nigeria should back down on the Sharia, said that similar um, privileges must be extended to Christianity. Uh, this strategy of saying treat us the way you treat Muslims backfired in the end. The federal government, I think, uh, sponsored the building of a mosque in Abuja, the new state capital, uh, several million dollars involved. And when the Christians asked for similar concessions, they were given several million dollars. And the Christians could not agree among themselves what to do with this money. Um, they couldn't exactly agree on building a church, since they have such different ideas where the church is. So they thought they should build an ecumenical center. And the question that arose what they should do in this ecumenical center, 
And some of them thought they should play the music of Bach in the ecumenical center. But military rule kept the lid on this kind of domestic unrest and pressure. Um, but with the return to civilian rule, with the election of Olusegun Obasanjo to power in May 1999, the Sharia debate, the Sharia issue, uh, Sharia is the Islamic legal code, erupted once more into public controversy. The Nigerian constitution of 1979 had recognized Sharia courts by giving them jurisdiction over civil matters. But this was merely a recognition of the colonial status quo because under the colonial government, Sharia had effects uh, on personal law and personal status. <clears throat> and this provision in 1979 was confirmed in 1999 in the amendment to the Nigerian constitution, although it uh, made an ambiguous reference to, quoting from the amendment, to other jurisdiction as may be conferred upon Sharia courts by the law of the state. The Sharia question assumed explosive force with the announcement in October 1999 of the inauguration of Sharia rule penal law in Zamfara state in the north of Nigeria by its youthful governor Ahmed Sani Yerima to the alarm of Nigerian federal authorities. Yerima had shelved his clean corporate image and instead sprouted a shaggy beard that highlighted his handsome face as that of a medieval cleric. He declared that Sharia government, Sharia law, was the culmination of the hopes, the ideals, and the aspirations of Nigerian Muslims. The long-delayed awakening of the dormant ummah of the faith community from its silence and inactivity. National independence for Nigeria in 1960, Yerima said, had given the Muslim people of the north only a partial victory leaving the way open for the full implementation of Sharia law someday. That day, in almost apocalyptic tones, he announced that day had now arrived with his statement. Yerima received support and endorsement of the Arab world. He obtained a grant of 500 million naira from the Arab states to underwrite his program of de-laicization of state structures and institutions. The grant was more than the total state revenue, and yet even such substantial outside involvement failed to move the federal government to action. President Abbasanjo adopted the attitude that, well, as the Germans would say, this is an Ein Tagesflieger, a pestering fly that will die after a brief day of glory. Yerima is adamant, the governor of Zamfara state, is adamant that Sharia penal law does not breach the boundary between the Islamization of the state, or what you might call the evangelization of the state, which he opposes, and the Islamization of society, which he favors. This is a very crucial distinction. It has roots in the broader Islamic tradition, as some of you know, 
this happened in Turkey, for example, in the secularization of Turkey uh, in, in the 1920s. But the specific source for this distinction between the evangelization of the state and evangelization of society has roots in Nigeria itself among Nigerian Muslim leaders such as Al-Haji Abubakar Gumi, who died in 1992, who was the Grand Qadi, the Chief Justice, you might say, of Northern Nigeria, and the leader of a very important reform Islamic movement in Nigeria called the Izala. Uh, Izala, uh, from the Arabic, means eradication uh, or purification. Um, and it's the name of the Society for the Eradication of Heresy and the Establishment of the Prophet Sunnah, founded in 1978. By the way, Gumi did receive the equivalent of a Nobel Prize from the Arab states for his hardline stance. Another cleric, Muslim leader, who supports, uh, who is involved in this debate, is a man called Sheikh Ibrahim Al-Yaqub, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Yaqub Al-Zaki. Uh, he is the head of the Shiite Brotherhood based in Zaria, although some reports say the Brotherhood is based in Kafanchang. Now, that's very, very unusual. Uh, most Islam in West Africa is not Shiite but Sunni and suddenly very little contact with Iran until after the 1979 revolution. So Al-Zaki's role in this is very, very unusual. But according to Al-Zaki, um, he favors the evangelization of the state uh, rather than the evangelization of society. It's a very important distinction. Um, this question, then, of evangelization, whether of the state or society, um, is likely to determine, I think, the outcome of the contest uh, in the Muslim world between the traditionalists, the conservatives, and the modernists or the reformers. So it's an important one, and I want to spend some time to spell it out. It frames a very important debate uh, in the Muslim world about the nature of secularization, modernization, and the nature of religious faith and religious loyalty. As a general matter, modernist Arab thought has tended to oppose a public role for religion on the basis that religion is outside the purview of public reason and secularization, on the other hand, belongs with democracy in the public arena. In this distinction, religion is a matter of private profession, private faith. In the particular case of North Nigeria, the Islamization of society, according to those who support this approach, would not politicize religion in the way that the Islamization of the state would. Furthermore, the Islamization of society, to evangelize society, would involve a code of strict personal standards of religious observance, such as prayer, 
pilgrimage and devotion. And could proceed with a dual affirmation of a secular state, of a laic, I don't want to say a secular state, of a laic state, on the one hand, on, an, on the other, of the role of Muslims in promoting Islam without denying a similar role for members of other religions. Thus, a senior Muslim political leader in the Sokoto Sultanate, Al-Hajj Aliyu the Magari or Gaji, dismisses the idea of political Islam, of the evangelization of the state, as mere academic uh, diversion, or in his words, as the view of radical academics who ingratiate themselves with the government. Al-Haji Aliu contends that the Islamization of society, the evangelization of people, should be commended for its enlargement of the civil scope of society, for its building of human community, and for its value in setting moral standards for conduct and behavior without state interference. It's very crucial to this view of Islamization. The state has no role in the conversion, in the evangelization, and the conversion of people. And in that way, according to Aliyu, Muslims may support separation of church and state and take their place in national affairs alongside other Nigerians who are not Muslim. Opposite these people are the proponents of the Islamization of the state, and they favor a different course of action. And here I return to Sheikh Gumi, the Islamic Nobel laureate, you might say. And he spoke for the proponents of politics as religion when he says, when he said in one place that prayer was less important than politics, or to put it more forcefully, politics is more important than prayer or pilgrimage. Startling statement. But this is what he means. He said a Muslim who is delinquent at his or her prayer brings harm only to himself or to herself. Whereas a Muslim who was politically remiss, delinquent, implicates the larger Muslim community, both present and future. On this philosophical issue, Al-Zakzaki, whom I mentioned earlier, the Shiite-sponsored cleric, agrees with Gumi, although Gumi is a Sunni Muslim scholar, whereas Zakzaki is Shiite, but agrees with, with Gumi. There had been trouble in Nigeria before 1999, before the declaration of Sharia rule in Zamfara state. In May 1979, for example, the Muslim Student Society at Amadubelo University set up on members of a palm wine drinking social club, gutting the senior staff club and attacking the office and residence of the vice chancellor, the head of the university, before seeking refuge in the campus mosque. When in 1982, Churches were attacked in Kano, the authorities recalling the 1979 riots, because that's the year, year of the Iranian Revolution, if you remember, recalling the riots of 1979, blamed the Muslim Student Society, 
saying the society had ideological links with the Iranian revolution. The smoking gun in the disturbances was a stray pamphlet emanating from the Iranian Ministry of Islamic Guidance picked up by a journalist in the streets of Joss. The general point of the authorities that the Iranian link, uh, if such existed, that the Iranian link was with factions committed to the Islamization of the state, that, kind, that part of the argument connects only partially with the evidence in picking up on a cleavage that has northern roots. Al-Zagzaki stepped into that breach, trailing Iranian colors, but I'm arguing that the controversy itself has local roots, not just foreign conspiracy from outside. So Sheikh Gumi, for example, identified with that course even though he had no Iranian connections or links. The identity of interest between the approach favored by Gumi for the Islamization of the state and Zagzaki has nothing to do, it seems to me, with the northern Muslim agitation for Sharia law as such. And that common goal, that is to say the northern interest in Sharia law and Gumi's interest in the Islamization of the state, may explain why Gumi could make this fantastic statement that politics is more important than religion. It's a fantastic statement on Islamic grounds. But that's because of the local roots uh, of the controversy. On Islam as political legitimacy, the core issue for those involved in this debate is this. These are the questions that these Muslims are struggling with. Is the secular case, like the American case, for the separation of church and state an adequate response to the public appeal of religion in Nigeria? And conversely, is the Islamist case the case of the conservatives, of the radicals, for implementing Sharia as comprehensive code, too rough and ready a remedy for the problems of a diverse and a dynamic society like Nigeria. For all the protagonists, all the participants in the dispute, the question is whether divine sanction that is so potent in the lives of believers should be required for the policy-making functions of the state. Should religion give us a syllabus of government? And should the practices of government be made into pillars of religion? You have shades here, I think, of the debate um, in the West. The great challenge of the separation of church and state demands that we allow a degree of mutuality and complementarity between them. As part of its policy of indirect rule, the British colonial administration in North Nigeria established Sharia jurisdiction in Muslim personal law 
And to that extent, the British were willing to modify their Enlightenment scruples about maintaining a separation between religion and politics, between rational, irrational, progressive state machinery on the one hand, and an irrational, oppressive religious establishment on the other, a la the French Revolution. So, by the way, French anti-clericalism in France, after the end of the Concordat with the Catholic Church in 1905, translated to Africa, was resisted by Muslim Africans. And that forced the French anti-clericals to modify their attitude towards religion. So, for example, the Muslim leaders of Senegal said that the establishment of schools for the establishment of Catholic schools should not be banned on the grounds that similar arrangements should be made for Muslims. <laughs> uh, which is a very ironic situation, that, that the, the French anti-clerical colonial leaders were forced by Muslims to modify their anti-Christian um, uh, attitude on the ground. So this modification of this enlightenment division between religion as irrational and backward and primitive in the fight against the church and the state as rational and progressive, this division was modified, both in the French and the British case. The colonial empire suddenly introduced changes in local political and cultural institutions. But colonialism also produced alterations in European intellectual ideas about the so-called rational state. Thus did the British arrive at the view that the political legacy of the Enlightenment had no ancestry in Africa. So venerating the Enlightenment in Africa would vex the old spirits and make colonial rulership all but impossible. In the, same, in the same vein, the dogma of an autonomous modern secular state in post-colonial Africa is out of step with the historical experience and social realities, and therefore we need to adjust the idea of the secular state as autonomous, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnicompetent. You can see in this that I believe the advantage in this debate really lies with the conservatives and not with the radicals. Uh, this is rather difficult to say now because in the aftermath of 9-11 in the United States, we are absolutely convinced that the remedy is to suppress any religious, Muslim religious claim uh, for political legitimacy. We feel this is part of the holy crusade, the holy war. But I think we are mistaken. I think we are wrong. Uh, the intellectual argument favors the conservatives, namely that the state cannot be the source of divine grace for human beings, necessarily. And that the promise of secular liberation of the state as the engine, or put it another way, the state as the messianic fulfillment of divine promise for human life is idolatrous by its very nature. 
the state is idolatrous when it makes those religious claims. But that argument, it seems to me, needs to be delicately made and not wrapped in political rhetoric. Uh, because I think you can make that argument behind very good theological and religious reasons. Not just because it works and therefore everybody should be treated the same. Those are pragmatic grounds for separation. And they don't really tell you the philosophical reasons why separation in the first place is desirable. They don't tell you that. In any case, uh, it's quite clear that the national state, after independence, inherited from the colonial government this idea of state omnicompetence. The state can be it all, can do it all, can see it all. Or as Kwame Nkrumah put it in Ghana, seek first the political kingdom and everything else shall be added unto you. This view of the state, I argue, creates a culture of secular or political fundamentalism. So when we, when we think of religious fundamentalism, we should look also at its mirror opposite in terms of secular fundamentalism. Secular fundamentalism is the dogma of the state or citizenship as definitive of the moral identity of human beings. And religious people of conscience find this troubling. They find this difficult to accept on theological grounds. Even the American Declaration of Independence began with a theocentric view of the political community that the founding fathers wanted to create in the United States. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jefferson knew of a different way to frame that in Virginia, in the Virginia Declaration of Rights in June 1776, which began, all men are in nature equal, right, and proceeded like that. But that is a lie. We are not in nature, all of us, equal. Some are stronger than others. Some are more able than others. Uh, and nature visits us with so many calamities that are not evenly distributed. So we are not, all of us, in nature equal. So when the founding fathers thought of the American community, they thought in moral terms. And to justify that, they had to base it on the notion of personhood. Because they were fighting the king of England, and so the question of legitimacy was important for them. By what right do you embark on this rebellion against the crown? Constituted authority. Well, they said there is a higher law, and that is the law of God. That, that's why we can rebel. You see, they had to justify the revolution in intellectual terms. So I think the surrender to the dogma of the national secular state as definitive of human identity. It's a surrender to a dogmatic view of secularism that is nothing short of fundamentalism. And therefore, necessarily attracts the criticism of religious people. Now, this, of course, is a very important issue. I have 
just come from China, and I was amazed. I went to China without much preparation. I'd never been to China before, and I even didn't know the subject of the conference in terms of how they proposed to deal with it. And I was amazed to find that this issue of church and state, of religion and politics, is at the very heart of the intellectual struggle in China today to emerge post-Mao and post-Confucian ethics as well into the modern world. And they, they think they can learn, they want to learn from the West. They think this is the secret to the success of the West. That is to say, this issue of how you skillfully bring together these tremendous segments of human life, the political and the religious, the moral and the pragmatic. It is quite clear that the debate, uh, the proponents of the evangelization of the state and the evangelization of society have introduced a very important issue. And it cannot be resolved merely by the arguments of human rights, that the individual has rights that are inviolable. Because if you argue on the basis of human rights and you say for pragmatic reasons it works, well, who are we to say that one individual has rights that the majority cannot violate? One individual has rights only on the basis that God created all of us equal. That's why one individual has rights. If it's merely a function of power, then the collective will surely uh, is more powerful than the individual will. And so against the individual, the state and the multitude's will is inexorable by final reason of mass and power. In the secular scheme, the advocates of the integration of church and state, religion and politics argue that the individual has no God-given rights, only interests. And that is why human rights and the ethos of human dignity that they engender require faith in the divine right of personhood, in a faith that fosters the twin culture of rights and obligations. Of freedom and community. The integration of religion and politics is committed to a scriptural view of human dignity, in the Islamic case, the Jalal or the Karama of the individual, predicated on the honor of God, particularly as regards the status of women and children. The integrists, uh, the advocates of integration, call for a moral foundation for the public order that is not at the mercy of a fickle popular will and is free from the calculations of the political ledger. But we have to then say, with those who want to join church and state, religion and politics in Islam, that the Sharia penal case also needs adjusting. 
It needs to be delicately pruned and trimmed. Church state integration on the Sharia supremacy would be harmful to the religious teachings of Islam itself as well as to the values of political liberalism. Muslims are enjoined when they pray not to say Islamu Akbaru but Allahu Akbaru. Not Islam is most great but God is most great. God than whom is nothing greater. That's really the translation of that, to use the famous words of Anselm of Canterbury. God than whom is nothing greater. So, Muslim worship, the divine obligation on human beings, is not to take anything above God, place anything above God, because God is who is than whom is nothing greater. And this view of the religious life means, therefore, that religion and politics or church and state are not equal. There is not a symmetrical relationship between church and state. They are not equal. And by joining them, we run the danger of collapsing one into the other. And this is why, at the grassroots on the ground, many Muslims complain that Sharia advocates are only using religion for, for their own political interests. You hear that in the Sudan, in Nigeria, people say this. They're only using religion for their own political interests. Behind that complaint is the idea that this kind of uncritical mixing corrupts the moral foundations of religion. Why do I obey God? On the Sharia law, you obey God because if you don't, you get punished. Well, fear of reprisal is a terrible motive for trying to be a moral human being. <laughs> That's a terrible way. Even, even in a free society, fear of punishment cannot produce the model citizen. Here we're meeting in the Maxwell Center of Citizenship. And this Athenian code just outside this hall. Uh, underneath that is a very big issue as to whether citizenship, loyalty, is ultimately a spiritual thing rather than merely instrumental. Somebody is standing over you with a whip and if you don't do, they crack the whip. See, that, that's not a very good basis for citizenship. So fear alone, fear of reprisal, is a terrible motive in the religious life, but so it is in a free and liberal democratic society. See, religion and politics really do belong together. The insights of religion are profoundly important for the quality of life as citizens in a free society. By the way, Madison said the same thing in 1784. James Madison. He said the same thing. He said, Christianity is a divine religion. Because it came into existence in spite of every attempt by the state to suppress it, to kill it. And therefore the power of Christianity is its power and its capacity to persuade and to convince. Ah, but Madison said the same thing with our democracy in America. 
We believe that the experiment we are putting in place is something that is in harmony with the intentions of God for human life. Freedom. So that the fear of the magistrate or fear of the king punishing you is removed altogether from the springs of political obligation. It's a thorny issue in the Middle Ages, the whole question of political obligation. Why do I obey the ruler? The divine right of kings. He is appointed by God. That's why you obey the ruler. Madison say no. No. We make these laws ourselves because government or the state is a human contrivance. We create the state, we change the laws when they don't suit us. There is nothing immutable or fixed about them. But the basis of that is to promote the flourishing of human life and of community well-being. We've moved a long way from that, from Madison. You see, Madison's notion of this idea why religion should not be a construct of the state was because religion had divine sanction. That's why the state does not. Today we say we must separate them because we, we are afraid that religion will, how do we put it? Religion will take our freedom away. That's how we put it. Uh, we, we are afraid. We think that religion is not compatible with our freedom as citizens. Madison would be turning in his grave. He would have no clue what we were talking about. Because that's not the basis of the American understanding of church and state. In fact, in the Constitution, there is no phrase about separation of church and state. It only says that government is excluded from the free exercise of religion. No, not about separation of church and state. In any case, you can see why I believe that the debates, the discussions we've had in the United States about this very critical issue and the Puritan background to these debates, going back to Roger Williams and in the 17th century and even in the 16th century, going back to Richard Overton, a London Puritan, uh, and even before then to John Haas and John Wycliffe and all these people. These, these debates laid the foundation for what then became later in the 18th century, this bold experiment in America of founding democratic freedoms on religious toleration. John Locke, in the essay on toleration, argued in that book that toleration itself is a religious value, or as you and I would put it, is a fruit of the gospel. That's what John Locke was arguing. Toleration itself is a fruit of the gospel. That's exactly in line, maybe Madison was actually borrowing from John Locke uh, in this respect. But it seems to me that this is absolutely crucial to the dialogue between civilizations, between the West and the Muslim world, on this whole issue of church and state relations. So we need to modify the Sharia case, the Sharia debate, for the integration of religion and politics. Sharia criminal law risks mobilizing the engine of intimidation and repression against non-Muslims who are then isolated, against Muslims 
to press them into acquiescence and conformity and against the religious scholars in the Muslim community who in conscience feel bound to challenge publicly the claims for Sharia jurisdiction. This happened in the Sudan with Sheikh uh, Mahmoud Taha who was executed in the 1980s precisely for this reason that he as a Muslim scholar found himself compelled publicly to disagree with the state co-option of religion. He was in his 80s, an old man. And one dawn, finally, Numeri had him, he was in prison, marched him at dawn, instead of him saying his dawn prayers, marched him to the gallows, and he was hanged. Uh, and that's, that's a terrible consequence for both religion and the state. So Sharia law then needs to be modified. On the Sharia criminal law, fear of retribution or hope for reward, not intellectual conviction or moral integrity, would control people's behavior and conduct. So for both the political subject, citizen of the state, and the religious person, freedom under such circumstances is nothing but a denial of itself. Sharia penal law risks lowering the threshold for faith to the level of political enforcement so that, if you like, God's rule in human affairs becomes a matter of political fiat. And under that regime, unbelief, pretense, fear, hypocrisy will rule. The very things, the very things that Sharia law set out to eradicate. Uh, this is so similar to Paul's reflections in the Epistle to the Romans about how a religious remedy in a legalistic way provokes the very crisis that it wants to remedy. Very similar. So I'm arguing that there is a moral, a moral issue involved and that we and the Muslim world, the West and the Muslim world need to engage this issue. And I'll end with a quotation from a classical Muslim scholar, Sufyan Thawri, who was a Syrian scholar. And he made a statement that the best rulers of the world are those who visit religious scholars. And the worst religious scholars are those who visit worldly rulers. I don't know whether you get his point. This Sufian Thauri was writing in the 8th century already, over 1,200 years ago. He's making a very important point here that society will flourish if religion, if morality qualifies the rules of politics. If the worldly rulers visit religious scholars for guidance, for counseling, for enlightenment, for instruction, for catechism, if you like. But if 
politics qualify the religious and the moral life, then corruption will ensue. Corruption will ensue, religion will be corrupted, politics also will be corrupted. Or let me refine that further. Religion has to do with the infinite, with the eternal, with the immutable, with God, in a word, with God. Politics, as Madison so well laid it out, politics have to do with the expedient, with the pragmatic, with the immediate, with effects. If you take the relative, which is politics, and use it to qualify the absolute with the religion, then you corrupt religion and you also corrupt politics. If you take the absolute, which is religion or the moral, and you qualify political expedience, then both politics and religion will flourish. Let us take the three things in the Declaration of Independence, the American Constitution. Inalienable rights that God has given us. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Life is sacred, the sanctity of life. It is when the state becomes cynical and says that, well, except under certain circumstances, life is, life is sacred. Only under certain circumstances, the state becomes cynical. The state then leaves the way open to the violation of human life. And this has happened all the time. You know the joke before the Soviet Empire collapsed in Eastern Europe about free elections. Uh, the party stalwarts used to say, yeah, we'll go, you will go for elections. We call them democratic elections in East Germany. We are not afraid because if the government loses the confidence of the people, it shall dissolve the people and elect another. That was a cynical attitude. The government loses the confidence of the people, it shall dissolve the people and elect another. So, the sanctity of life is a divine norm. That's a religious norm. Life is sacred. And it's not economic or political that we have to decide if a life is not productive, we must end it. <laughs> you know, uh, and this is gaining a little bit of steam in our own culture, in our own society. But religion says no, that's a red flag over that. Okay, what about freedom, liberty? God has created us in freedom and delights in our freedom, not in our enslavement. It is only when the state says, well, people are free, except, or under certain circumstances, you know, this may not be so. So we can take people's freedom away because they challenge or they threaten the stability of the state. And this has often happened. In, again, in Eastern Europe, they used to say at trials, uh, they wanted to haul in political enemies. And they would say, but on what charges? You know, in law. And when they couldn't think of any charges, 
except that they, they didn't like these people's political opinions, they would say, ah, that's no problem. We can charge them on the official, under the Official Secrets Act, where you don't have to say <laughs> uh, in the open what the ground for the, for the arrest may be. So freedom is, again, a divine norm. It's a religious norm. The Quran itself, it says, La ikraha fiddin. There is no compulsion in religion. And the lawyers who were later reflecting on the whole issue of slavery in Islam may produce the statement at the head of Islamic law, Asal Khuwa al-Khuriya. Asal Khuwa al-Khuriya. The original condition of the race of Adam is freedom. That's what the law says. Oh, by the way, this is also in Greek philosophy. That, because if you don't have that, you make God contradict himself. God cannot create people, right, some free, some slave. That would be a contradiction of the whole notion of creation. God is one. And so God created us in freedom. What about the pursuit of happiness? That's where we went wrong. That's where we went wrong. Uh, I know it's a very big part of American culture, the entertainment industry, uh, Hollywood and Oscars and the Grammy Awards. Uh, my son is a little bit into this himself. Um, it's a big part of our culture. But it is a variation on the pattern of the divine sanction for the political enterprise. But the founding fathers perceived, they didn't put it in these words, was that the happiness of America, the tranquility of the Commonwealth, the well-being of the Republic, will be assured if Americans pursue not happiness, but justice and righteousness. That is, happiness is a byproduct of something else. You know, if you like Skiing, for example, or hockey games, you get tremendous happiness from that. I like sugar in my tea. It gives me tremendous happiness. A cup of tea. If happiness is a byproduct of something else. And in the Republic, as the Americans first conceived it, the flourishing, the happiness, the well-being, the health of society would be a function of America's pursuit of the works of God, of the works of righteousness, and of justice. In fact, I'm not just making this up. At the very opening of the Constitution, the first paragraph, the first phrase, talks about justice for all under the law. It uses the word justice. Happiness occurs nowhere else <laughs> in the Constitution. So I'm not really just making this up. And in that respect, it seems to me, the political enterprise itself, has as its core, and Americans were so right, a theocentric vision of human community and human well-being. We are created by our creator. We are not created by ourselves. And our happiness and our well-being and our security lies in looking for the ways of God. And as the prophets put it, to love justice to love righteousness, and to walk humbly with our God.
And I think on that basis, we have something to share with our Muslim friends. Thank you very much.